Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Louise Hitchcock makes a fourth appearance on the Ithaca Bound podcast. On April 13th, 2021, Dr. Hitchcock joined the show and we had a conversation about Greek island architecture in the Bronze Age. Then on June 13th, 2021, Dr. Hitchcock joined the show again and we had a conversation about the Theron civilization during the Bronze Age. Geographically and using modern day terminology, the focus of that conversation was on the island of Santorini. Then on July 8th, 2021, Dr. Hitchcock joined the show again and we had a conversation about the Minoan civilization in the Bronze Age. And again, geographically and using modern day terminology, the focus of that conversation was on the island of Crete. And we spoke about various items because we were speaking about a previous civilization. One of those aspects that we spoke about was on settlements. So architecture and buildings, etc. So in today's conversation, Dr. Hitchcock joins the show again, and we're going to have a conversation about the Minoan settlements in the Bronze Age. So we're going to dedicate an entire episode to this topic. Dr. Hitchcock is Professor of Archaeology in the Discipline of Classics and Archaeology in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies within the Faculty of Arts at the University of Melbourne, based in Australia. She has written over 100 publications over her career, including co-authoring the book Aegean Art and Architecture, which was published by Oxford University Press. And she's author of the book, Theory for Classics, which was published by Routledge. And Dr. Hitchcock joins the show today from Melbourne. Welcome back on the show, Louise. Great to be here, Andrew. Good to see you. It's always good to connect with you, Louise. So the last time, as you know, uh, and, any, and many of the listeners will, will know, we chatted about uh, the Minoan civilization in the Bronze Age. The question that I asked first in that episode I'm going to ask again, obviously some of the words will be different, but materially it's going to be the same, uh, to create sufficient background and context for the conversation, Louise, and then of course we can work our way into the details. What, who were the Minoans? The Minoans were the civilization on Bronze Age Crete, the Bronze Age being from 3000 to 1200 BCE, and um, they were named by Sir Arthur Evans who excavated the Minoan Palace at Knossos, the first major site that was excavated on Crete, which he excavated in 1899. And when he excavated the palace, he initially thought that, um, he initially referred to the what he was excavating as Mycenaean. However, he realized he was dealing with a very advanced and earlier culture than the Mycenaeans of mainland Greece. And he named them Minoans after King Minos of Greek mythology. However, we, that was not what they called themselves. We don't really know what they called themselves, but the Egyptians referred to the people of Crete as Keftiu. Um, in Mesopotamia, uh, the Akkadian texts refer to them as Kaptaru, and in the Old Testament, Crete is referred to as Kaftor, all sort of variations on the modern word Crete. And so um, when we think of Minoans, we think of this civilization uh, that was early and very advanced, but was actually named by Sir Arthur Evans. Okay, so it's the island, if we use a modern day term, that everybody will be familiar with, Crete. And we're talking about 
the Minoans during the, the Bronze Age. And we're talking about settlements and architecture that buildings and such that would have existed in that period of time with this civilization. So if we zoom in the conversation then, given, given those parameters, um, if we zoom in the conversation on, on settlements, how many different settlements is known or believed would have existed in the Bronze Age with the Minoans on the, the island? Well, Homer refers to Crete as a land of 90 cities with everybody speaking their own languages. Um, however, in terms of what has been discovered and excavated, we have evidence for about seven or eight sites with um, so-called palace architecture on them. And we have to assume that there was a hinterland that was connected to that palace. In two instances, we have village settlements that surround the palaces. And then we have about 29 or 30 uh, very sort of manorial villas that incorporate palatial style architecture that have been found elsewhere on Crete. We have to assume that there were probably other settlements as well that remain undiscovered and unexcavated. How many buildings then uh, have have been found and to some reasonable degree has have been excavated and what do scholars believe uh how many how many buildings do scholars i know this can this is perfectly fine to estimate and infer um how many uh buildings do scholars believe would have existed during the during the bronze age well, it's impossible to say, but I can tell you in terms of what was discovered, mm -hmm. we probably have 80 or 90 buildings that have been actually excavated. Okay. 80 or 90. Okay. So in seven to eight palaces, seven to eight palaces, I believe you mentioned as well, right? Yes. Okay. So if we, so let's, let's start with, um, the, the palaces, are they, can, can you describe, are they, um, is there is there a reasonable distance? Are they are they considered they're on different different sites, the seven to eight, or in some cases they're on the same site? Oh no, they're in very different sites, and there are various different theories around this. I mean, when evidence excavated Knossos, and this is when the first other three big palaces were also discovered, uh, by including but ones by the Italians and the French. It's almost like you have a mini Europe with these excavations. There was a belief that um, one was the center of the king and that the king traveled from palace to palace, much like Queen Elizabeth goes to Balmoral or to Windsor or to Buckingham Palace. Um, but I believe today most of us think of these as separate um, political entities that were, in con that were connected to each other through trade and diplomacy but not um, the sort of satellite sites of one king that traveled around. Okay. Um, so let's start with the, because um, I obviously want to make sure we cover palaces and settlements, uh, whether associated like in, in terms of proximity or not to, to the palaces, but we we'll want to make sure we cover both, both those in the conversation today. Can you describe it, uh, a typical palace then, one of these seven or eight palaces, how... Uh, either bringing in um, w what is clear today, but also what 
is inferred about what the palaces would have been like um, in, in the Bronze Age. And I ask that very, very broadly, but, you know, really um, creating the contours for, for what this pal uh, what a palace would have would have been like. Um, size perhaps can come in. You could speak about topo topography, number of rooms, etc. I'm really glad you asked that. A typical palace, um, and I'm speaking of the most refined, like four or five of them, were um, included a labyrinthine ground plan. In fact, our word labyrinth is a Minoan word. It means house of the double axe. And it's come, gone to take on this idea of a maze-like structure, which the Minoan palaces were. And this labyrinthine ground plan was organized around a large central court, um, often uh, with the three biggest ones, it was about 100 meters long by 50 meters wide and it was oriented north-south, often um, facing a sacred mountain. And you had um, up to like 100, 100 or so rooms. And again, these structures were multi-story, so you would have had even more than that. But typically you had what we call functional zoning, where you had storage areas located to the west of the court. And these consisted of rows of long, narrow, um, storage rooms that we call magazines, often with large storage jars called pithoi in them. And these uh, pithoi were maybe around uh, three feet or a meter tall. And then you had um, major entryways on the south and on the north. And in the east of the palaces, you had elaborate halls for gathering um, and possibly also sleeping. And um, these also consisted of, of a very complicated architectural structure um, where we have what are known as pier and door partitions. Um, pier and door partitions are where you have a room composed of walls that aren't made up of solid walls, but yet they're made up of a series of piers that had double doors that opened. And you could either open these doors and create a larger space or close them and create a smaller space. And then they usually opened onto um, a sort of what we call a four hall and then a light well, which was an area, like a mini court open to the sky, which helped bring light into the building. And by manipulating the pier and door partitions, you could create, um, again, as I said, a larger or smaller space, or you could close every other door, creating, contributing to the sort of labyrinthine quality of the architecture, where if you had decided to use the area also for a ritual purpose, you could open and close every other door and disorient someone maybe give them some drugs and um, create sort of ritual sense of complexity. But they could also be opened up for large gatherings. And the thing that you could most compare them to would be if you were in a hotel, and we all know how hotels are not just places where people stay, but they have meeting rooms and banquet rooms. And you have in like ballroom areas partitions that you can close off the area by closing the partition or create a larger space by opening it. And these pier and door partitions were a very sophisticated way of accomplishing the same thing. And they're absolutely unique in terms of what you find in comparison to the surrounding regions of either Egypt or the Near East. Well, the last comment you just made there uh, had triggered um, the a follow-up question I'm gonna ask. It, the, this, um, the mechanics of what you described there, this this architecture around the partitioning um, and the different utilities that come with it, is 
is that considered innovative for its time? Yes, absolutely it was. It was actually what drew me to the topic of studying them. I did my PhD on the Minoan palaces. I had actually, for my master's degree, been studying the um, history and literature of the ancient Near East. And I heard a lecture by the person who went on to become my supervisor about the palace architecture and how intricate it was and how carefully it was planned and how complicated it was. And I was kind of absolutely from that point blown away and captivated and decided I wanted to try to understand more about what these buildings meant. Very interesting, Louise. Um, you said 100 rooms. So some of these palaces would have had 100 rooms approximately? Well, probably even more if you consider the upper stories. Okay. And they have upper stories because we have evidence for stairways. And it's not like you have a complete stairway, but what you might have is sort of a narrow room, like maybe shaped like a corridor, but you might see two or three steps and the rest of the area is destroyed or um, just sort of decomposed. And But you know from those two or three steps that you would have had a stairway going up even further and leading to an upper floor. Hmm. How many floors... Uh, total in in some some cases, including uh, was anything found in terms of cellars uh, or or basements? However, you define yeah, that. that's an interesting question. I Evans reconstructs Knossos with three stories. I don't think we have evidence for more than two, but at the same time, you have to think about the possibility that people also use the roofs, and um, it, and you see this today in modern Syria. I lived in. Aleppo for about a year, visit many Syrian villages, and in the summer people are up there doing work, at night they sleep there because it's cooler, so we have to think of the roof as also a functional area. And also, when you look at a plan, for example, of Knossos, it makes it look like you're seeing things all on the same level. Um, in fact, that's not the case. With You have the central court and you have the west wing with the um, storage rooms and some ceremonial rooms, but then on the east wing, what you see on the plan looks like it's at the same level, but in fact, it's at a lower level and it was cut into a terrace. The Minoans, um, one of their traditional building techniques is to um, cut rooms into terraces and so have the terrace supporting the rear wall and then perhaps a stairway to an upper story. And so you have um, the rooms that show up as sort of being at court level on a plan of Knossos are actually one level below the court, and so you would have had a stair. You would have had a uh, a lower level where you had very ceremonial rooms, and then you would have had a ground level, and then you probably had a um, another level as well. So three levels altogether, and there could have been more, but I don't like to stray beyond the evidence, although some do. Which of the seven to eight palaces is the most uh, is believed to have been the most elaborate? in terms of, and potentially this could be different palaces in this, this case, in terms of its, its size on one hand, and then on, an, on another hand, in terms of its, its uh, decoration and ornament? That's a good question, and it's also a difficult question. In terms of size, Knossos, Malia, which is to the east, and Festalis is to, to the south, all have the same footprint in terms of size. Knossos has bigger blocks, but it's also viewed as being bigger, more elaborate, more important, um, partly because um, you have this like almost competition on archaeologists. The British 
excavated Knossos and tend to see it as paramount ruling over the island. The French excavated Malia and the Italians excavated Festos. And each is important and unique in its own way. Um, Knossos seems to be more elaborate, not just because we have more blocks, but we also have more wall paintings. But there's also another reason for that. Um, you have uh, the first palace at Knossos was damaged by an earthquake or some sort of seismic activity around 1700. It was built in 1900. And rather than being torn down and rebuilt, which you see at Festos in the south, it's repaired. And so you have a lot of fragmentary wall paintings from the earlier period. Then you have the wall paintings from that period. And then when Minoan civilization is destroyed in approximately 1450 BCE, um, most of the Minoan sites on Crete are destroyed, except for Knossos, which is re-inhabited by Mycenaean Greeks. And then it's also redecorated with a series of new wall paintings. And so you have this greater quantity of paintings, but each one belongs to a specific era. So it's not necessarily that much more, but it seems like more. When you've gone through the, the evidence, is there, is there one principal residence that you have a hunch was a principal residence or do you believe that, because um, you said that it, there, it could have been a case where there's a sovereign that um, traveled to different, like it was, it was their palaces and they would travel to, to these different, different palaces. Do you have a hunch if there was, was one principal re residence? Uh, and I guess it might have also changed over time, but what's, what's your thoughts? That's a really good question. I mean, that's the older belief. I never really felt comfortable with it. Um, unlike the later Mycenaean civilization, where we do have the word for palace and we have the word for king, um, we don't really know that the Minoan palaces were palaces. This is a modern term. Um, again, coming out of a background of having studied ancient Mesopotamia, I looked at Crete. When I started looking at Crete, a lot of um, academics wrote about how you had these palaces, but there were no temples. When I look at the palaces, I don't believe they were palaces. I believe these were the temples and that maybe the large villas close by were the actual palaces or places where the elites lived. I tend to see the palaces as focused on having, um, maybe worshiping a particular local deity and engaged in a particular sort of economic production where they were engaged with trade with the other um, palatial buildings, which again I prefer to call temples. And this is based out of having studied, again, Mesopotamian history or if you look at the history of Mesopotamia, you didn't initially have palaces. You had temples in what is known as the Sumerian temple state. And you had a priesthood. And then you had um, a second sort of, you had a chief priest, and then you had a general that might've commanded an army. And it's only after a period of time that the sort of military leader um, assumed uh, the role of a king and you started to have palaces alongside the temples. And so I think Crete had just reached a point where you had a temple state. And it's perhaps in trying to make that next step to a political state that led to the, um, maybe a civil war that led to the destruction of the palaces. Okay, let's talk uh, materials. Uh, what kind of materials were used to construct these uh, buildings? 
That's also a really great question. Um, often the stone used to construct each palace would be the local stone. In the case of Knossos, this was gypsum. There was a hill nearby known as the Gypsades or Gypsades Hill, which was largely gypsum. And it gave a really nice effect to the building in that gypsum is a very shiny translucent stone. And one colleague of mine actually talked about Knossos. He called it the crystal palace because the gypsum foundation blocks would have had a crystalline and shiny appearance, perhaps even imitating um, some of the architecture in Egypt. When you get to Malia further east, it's more like sandstone. And then when you go to Festos in the south, you had just um, the local stone and limestone, but then you had gypsum revetment, that is thin slabs that would decorate the planar stone surfaces. But it wasn't all stone. And what's interesting is when Evans reconstructs Canastos, he reconstructs um, the first story to look like it was all of stone blocks. Um, but what we have that remains of the original, what you have is um, a sort of foundation course that was visible of these um, translucent, shiny gypsum blocks. And then above that, people or the Minoans built with a sort of what we call a timber and rubble and mud brick construction, where they had a timber framework, mud bricks, and stone. And this gave buildings elasticity so that in the event of earthquake, the building would move with the movements. And this is really important. In fact, one of my, uh, a colleague of mine, a senior colleague wrote an article on um, the Minoan builders as um, appeasing the earth shaker, the god of earthquakes. And this is really important because Crete, first of all, sat on a subduction zone. That means a giant fault in the sea that ran along the Southern part of Crete. And in the Byzantine era, you had enough seismic disturbance that the island actually tilted with the west part of the island rising up so that a site that was from the classical period in western crete that was a seaport is now inland and then eastern crete is now lower with um, and closer to the water where the minoan palace site in the east there actually gets flooded in the winter time but another important thing about this is I come from California where we have earthquakes and there the, the tendency is to also build with a white timber framework and plaster um, and the walls seem very flimsy and very thin, but it gives them elasticity in the event of an earthquake. If you were to be in Los Angeles after a major earthquake, you could drive around and every time you pass a house with a chimney, you would see a pile of bricks. You don't see brick architecture. And for me now, it's kind of a novelty in my neighbor. I live in a neighborhood in Melbourne, which is a vintage neighborhood of 19th century houses. And we live in a 19th century church and it's all brick, but you would never see this in an earthquake zone. Interesting, Louise. Uh, so gypsum, sandstone, I think you might've mentioned a third stone. You can bring it back into your response if you think. Limestone, limestone thank you. Um, are all well, the- As well, you know, it would be whatever is local. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. All, all technically versions of stone? Yeah, those are all types of stone if you're a geologist, yeah, geologically speaking. Okay, and you mentioned uh, mud bricks, timber, you elaborated on uh, one of the benefits of, of that. 
is that considered, I don't know if this term is uh, anachronistic, but are, is, that, is that considered to have also the utility of mortar or did they have another um, type of material for, for mortar? No, they use like mud or lime mortar, but mortar is more often used to refer to like if you're putting, um, building in course after course of stone architecture, you would have a thin layer of mud or lime to sort of give the, make the stone stick together a little bit, and that would be mortar. Whereas um, if you're building in mud brick and stone and timber, you would actually have bricks. Okay. Made out of mud. Oh, okay. So, so the mud, mud bricks fulfill on that purpose of having the, the, the stone stick together. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, now let's, let's go to anything else that you want to make sure, uh, you get across in this episode about the palaces before we shift gears. Um, just again, to reiterate that to have these very complex buildings with these labyrinthine rooms, and stairways going to upper the upper floors is that they had to have been carefully planned, which indicates that there was uh, an architect involved. And so you would have architects, you would have stonemasons, and then you would have builders. So you would have had a hierarchy of different skills involved in their construction. Okay. Oh, I I, I want to ask this as as well, and I'll probably ask a similar question when we get to the villas and other settlements in a moment. Um, Water, is there what's what's known about how they were able to um, supply themselves with with water? Is there and I guess what I'm getting at is, did the buildings themselves have any architectural features that facilitated access to water? That's a really good question. We do have water features at the Palace of Tabasacro on the east coast, although it may have been more symbolically oriented, and I can address that a little later in the talk. Um, the palace at Knossos was in a river valley where you had a river known as the Caritas, which today is fairly dried up, but it was probably an important stream and source of water at the time. But what you also had, you had lots of drainage, which was more about draining water off the sort of courtyard areas so they didn't become flooded. So you'd have to imagine maybe in periods of rain, water was being collected, but there hasn't been enough work done on sort of the water sources for many of the sites. Uh, using some modern terms, like using the toilet or the bathroom, some may say the loo, um, what's, what's known about how people used the, the, uh, the bathroom is there? And again, what I'm getting at is, uh, it, was there any features within the built buildings that would have facilitated that? That's also a really good question. There is a room in the east wing at Knossos that's near the two main Minoan halls. One is referred to as the Hall of the Double Axes. The other is referred to as the Queen's Megaron. And Evans had this idea that the smaller hall was for women. It was like a harem or a harem, um, although most people don't really accept that now. But in a corridor connecting these two rooms, there was an air, a room that could be interpreted like a toilet in that you had a vertical drain shaft going down and you had what might've been sort of a, a little bench next to it where somebody might've sat. And it's been often referred to as the first toilet in Europe. Whoop-de-doo. 
And then um, a couple of colleagues of mine who did a sort of very detailed study of this feature determined that um, because the um, uh, this sort of vertical drain shaft, it had a flat bottom, and even though it was connected to a drain, it was not built in such a way that it would flush out solid waste. Um, and it might have just been some sort of preparation room where you did some sort of washing or libations, um, but not really a toilet in the way we think of a toilet. And I think anyway, toilets are very modern sorts of uh, um, conceptions. At Akrotiri on Thera, which I talked about in one of the earlier talks, mm -hmm. one of the buildings there also had a room interpreted as a toilet. It was on an upper floor with a vertical drain and maybe a place to sit. And apparently they did find fecal matter in it, but it could have had other uses as well. And I'd like to compare this to just my experience of um, toilets in Syria. I belong to a swimming club there in Aleppo where um, the showers had a drain that wasn't too much different from the pit toilet and often people using it could not tell the difference between whether it was a toilet or a shower in terms of um, let's just say the residues you found in there when you went in. And toilets were not always very important. I remember being in a small village where I had to go, being kind of graphic here, and that took me to the goat shed. So I think in terms of how we can conceive of modern hygiene, the idea of a toilet is a very sort of modern Western type of feature. Okay, so let's, uh, let's go to the settlements and the, and the villas. Can you, um, can you, maybe a, a way to tackle, tackle this is juxtaposition. How, how, how would you describe villas um, uh, being different than the, the palaces? The biggest difference is one in scale. The villas had often many of the same features as the palaces. They did not have a central court. They just had a group of rooms that was built of very fine um, stone architecture with a Minoan pier and door partition hall, uh, a sort of dedicated storage area, um, a labyrinthine ground plan, and it would be unique from place to place to place. And um, other features such as uh, little pillar rooms, which were regarded as shrines. And it would just be like a sort of mini palace, but without the courtyard. And this is different from the vernacular architecture, which um, consisted of a more simple plan, which goes back to, incidentally, the Neolithic era on Crete. We had a large square room, sometimes with a column to help support a roof, and maybe along one side of the square room you would have two smaller rooms, and on the other side, three smaller rooms. And one of these smaller rooms might have also contained a staircase to go to an upper story. In some cases, the large square room with the column might have not had a column, but it might have been a courtyard but it was sort of a generic plan that was used um, by the average person, let's say, not, not in a lead to sort of construct a house. But then between the vernacular, what I call square within a square ground plan and the palaces and you had the palatial villas, um, they would be sort of in the middle between those two. Okay, um, how many approximate rooms uh, would a villa have? Gosh, it could have um, anywhere from 10 to 30 rooms. Okay, so still, these are still fairly substantive buildings. 
Yeah, yeah, and they're often, you know, archaeologists, they tend to, I mean, they use a lot of old-fashioned terminology, but they tend to refer to these as, like, manor houses. Um, but they're, what they really would be are elite buildings for somebody who would maybe be a provincial sort of uh, leader, a factional leader, maybe, um, somebody who was maybe well-connected to the palaces. And potentially, I think you said earlier, could have been a sovereign as well living there, right? Yeah, possibly a sovereign, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, okay, presumably the same kinds of material. Anything different that you want to highlight with the villas versus the palaces? Um, cut stone, really very nice cut stone. Again, often drawing on local materials. There's a particular favorite villa I have. It's in southeastern Crete, and it's on a hilltop overlooking the sea, and it's next to a river valley which I never really thought about its positioning until recently, but it's in a very strategic position in that if um, enemies were coming to attack Crete from the south and um, or to hide in the river valleys, it commanded a view over the river valley and over the ocean. And it had a sort of an elaborate hall decorated in gypsum, and it had a walkway um, uh, in its uh, exterior courtyard which was composed of purple limestone. And it would have been really striking at one time. Now it's kind of eroding, not so nice looking, but uh, uh, a very important structure. Okay. Um, it's the, the other settlements that wouldn't be classified as a palace or a, a villa, um, other buildings. Um, I wrote down earlier the number two uh, in one of your responses. So how many, with some of these palaces, how many other buildings would be surrounding uh, these, these palaces? We don't entirely know. And what I mean by that is you have like seven or eight or 10 palatial villas excavated around Knossos and also at Malia, not so many at Festos. And then you have a town excavated um, near a large palatial villa at Hagia Triata, and also a town excavated around the that surrounded the Palace of Gornia and surrounded Catazacro. And part of the problem is also that in the past, the emphasis has been on excavating the sort of um, elaborate elite zones of places or the wealthy tombs, not on the daily life of the average person. And this has a lot to do with the way we've studied history in the past, where history is about big men and big events. And in archaeology, that would translate into big buildings and big men and fancy objects. And so there's really probably a lot more to do in that regard. But we have two palatial sites that have like a very densely populated town uh, surrounding the palace. This is at Gornia in Eastern Crete. And uh, or East Central Crete and at Catasacro on the far east end of Crete, and then another site at Pele Castro, also in East Crete, where they excavate a lot of villas and never found a palace. Okay, so there's two uh, settlements on the island that there's evidence that there was a, however you def define it, a, a town or a, or a village. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, the, those buildings that, uh, that are known, um, do you want to describe, describe those? Well, the typical Minoan house, again, I would say it goes back to this vernacular style, 
with um, a large square room and a couple of rooms on one, on, on one end and maybe three rooms going down the other. And these would be densely packed together, but you would also have roadways between them and they would be closely constructed in the area of the palace at Catasacro at the east coast of Crete. Um, they, the palace is unusually at a lower elevation and the houses are going up the hill terrace looking down on the palace like the center. And at Gornia, they're kind of all at the same um, level, maybe the palace at the top part of a, a very low mound. Okay. So working our way soon to uh, wrapping up the, the conversation, um, uh, Louise, and I have an interesting, uh, what will probably be the fi final question uh, for you. But before we, before we uh, enter that, that stage, um, is there anything else about settlements that weren't palaces or villas that you want to make sure uh, gets across in this episode? Just that we need to do more exploration and excavation to understand um, these sort of intermediate areas. Okay, okay. Um, so we've covered palaces, we've covered villas, we've covered uh, buildings that uh, sound like they're uh, in, in many cases res residential, I assume, residential buildings? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, people had to live somewhere. Yeah, yeah, okay. Is there, you mentioned uh, te there, there's a strong notion, you, you have, you have uh, a notion that uh, palaces uh, also could have been temples, did I understand that earlier as well? I believe they actually were temples and that each was dedicated to a different localized deity such as you find uh, very much in Mesopotamia. I've argued that Knossos was the site of veneration of a weather god based on the prevalence of bull imagery. Bull imagery in the Near East is connected with the weather god Adad and not coincidentally in later um, classical culture, it was associated with Zeus, who was also a weather god. I've argued that Catasacro, which is on the east coast of Crete, where they found a lot of imports connected with trade with the Near East, such as um, brought copper ingots and ivory. Uh, Crete was very poor in raw materials, so these th sorts of things needed to be imported. That it was um, so it was uh, connected with religion, dedicated to trade and maritime activity. And another reason I argue this is based on the um, entrance to the Palace of Catasacro, rather than being on the southwest which you find at many of the other palaces, it's on the northeast with a road leading to the harbor where you might have received maritime traders and had uh, ceremonies connected around this. And Catasacro is the only um, one of the so-called Minoan palaces that had features connected with water in hmm. the form of uh, built pools that could have been connected with ritual activity to promote safety on the high seas. So the mar the maritime uh, comments interesting. How many how many ports uh, bona fide ports are believed to have existed? Um, Casablanca for sure. Um, Gornia because it was on a bay of Mirabello, um, and possibly in the south uh, at Festos. But Festos was a ways back from the water, and it would have the port city would have been at a site known as Comos, where you have actually another Minoan village. And then um, Knossos, um, the port would have been um, to the north. Uh, Knossos was a, a bit back from the coastline 
again on a river, but you would have had a port there. There was probably a port in the west at Hanya where um, much of the palatial period architecture has to have been excavated because it lies beneath the Minoan town. Um, but it, we know it would have probably been important because of it retains its prominence in the Mycenaean period where we have inscribed uh, linear Greek um, storage vessels coming from there, although it's later. So it would have retained its importance um, during that period. But Catasacro especially, it's been regarded as being built especially to facilitate trade with the East because of its um, situatedness on the East Coast of Crete. But the Minoans weren't just trading with the East, they were also trading with the Greek mainland. And they had important connections going through the Cycladic Islands, such as Thera, which I've spoken about already, but also into the region of Laconia, where, the, where later Sparta was. Um, and the area where Sparta was was important because um, they had a unique green and red stone. The green stone was called Lapis Lacedaemonius, and the red stone Rosso Antico, and the Minoans imported it in order to cut, create carved stone vessels. And there was an island on the way to this region um, called Kithra, where you have Minoan um, religious sites. And so it's thought it's in this area is one of the main areas where Minoan influence comes into the Greek mainland. Okay, so two closing questions, Louise. I think I think I think two. We'll see if there's any follow up <laughs> questions. But two main closing questions: If any listeners plan to visit Crete sometime in the in the future, um, and they want to visit at least one site while, while they're there. What, what, uh, what site do you recommend that they, they go to if they, if they were to choose one and, and why that site? Okay, well, most people go to Knossos because the airport and the main port were in Heraklion and that takes people to Knossos. Um, and also the Heraklion Museum, which contains most of the important Minoan finds from the island. Heraklion is worth visiting, but if you could visit another site, I would recommend the Palace of Festos to the south. It's just 36 miles south of Heraklion, and you can get there easily by car. And it shows the um, majesty of Minoan architecture without all the fake concrete reconstructions that you see at Knossos. But really, if you were to take a week or 10 days and rent a car, um, I showed my husband around Crete. And we visited 26 sites and museums in 10 days. Um, somebody asked me if I brought him home in a box afterwards, but uh, you, with a car, you can see much of the island relatively quickly. Okay. Um, and final question, Louise, presuming there's no follow-up question. If you were in this period, what settlement would you want to live in and why? Mm. Maybe Catasacro because it had a number of different interesting features. And if I was there, I could see how they were all used. But, um, you know, a lot of people are not nostalgic for the ancient world. Like they romance the Neolithic period because they think there was a great mother goddess. Or they romance the um, Minoan civilization because I think they were peaceful flower pickers. But um, I think I'm living in the best times now because... Uh, I have respiratory issues and uh, without antibiotics, I probably wouldn't have made it out of childhood. And uh, I, I was once on a panel at a science fiction convention 
or asked if we went back in time, what would be the three things they would take? We would take, and the one thing we all agreed on was a big jar of antibiotics. So uh, I don't really have a desire to live in the Minoan Bronze Age other than to maybe see what happened. Okay. It is always great chatting with you, Louise. Thanks for coming on the show again. Same here. Can I add one thing? Please. What you might want to hear about if we do a future conversation are the um, post-palatial settlements after the Mycenaeans took over Crete, because that's another interesting period. You want to cover it sometime? Yeah, I'd love to. Okay, let's uh, line it up sometime. Always great chatting with you, Louise. Great chatting with you, Andrew. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Hitchcock wrote, she's co-author of the book, Aegean Art and Architecture, and she's author of the book, Theory for Classics. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Louise and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.